Jeff. All right, I'm back. Good morning, Trinity. Uh, if you're new, we're, um, we're really glad that you're here. So this summer, we've been doing this um, a, a, ser- a sermon series called The Forgotten Torah. So Torah is just a really Jewish way of saying the Pentateuch. Those are the first five books uh, of the Old Testament penned by Moses. And the forgotten part that we're referencing is just Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy because we all skip over that part of our Bible, don't we? Uh, And it's because it's hard and mysterious. So this sermon series is our attempt to look at those sections of the Bible and ask, why does God think that those books are so relevant for modern people, right? And so, so far, we've studied the main passages of Leviticus, and, uh, and now we're, of course, in Numbers. And as you have noticed, um, we're not taking every single passage, but rather those parts of uh, those books that really help us get to the core of the message of the book. So this morning, we're studying Numbers 21 about the bronze snake. Now, uh, I have actually preached this passage before, back when Trinity was like worshiping at night a long time ago, just beginning. But I felt like it would be imprudent to do a study on numbers and not include this really important passage. Because this passage is going to allow you to peek into your own heart. And, and let me explain. So our passage picks up with Israel wandering in the d- desert. So 38 years earlier, God saved them from Egypt, but they have not yet arrived to the promised land. So they're saved, but they're not yet home. So that's a really difficult place to be, wandering in the desert. So the desert is a place where pretenses and appearances are all stripped away. And so Israel's true colors started coming out, and dare I say it, by studying this passage— We're going to be learning about the true colors in our own hearts. We're going to um, learn about the rebellion in our heart. Uh, When you study the book of Numbers, all the commentaries will tell you that there's a pattern or a cycle that, that, that emerges. There's this constant pattern of rebellion, then repentance, and then obedience. And this cycle is actually all over the Old Testament. But in our passage this morning, we will see the entire cycle... In these five verses. So this passage is like, this is an incredible like, case study. And so we're going to evaluate it verse by verse. And you'll see how this cycle emerges. So let's take a look at the cycle. Uh, because as we evaluate the rebellion in Israel, we're going to see ourselves. So we're going to do this in five steps. Five verses, five steps. Discontentment, trouble, repentance, mediator, and redemption. So, without further um, introduction, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is Numbers chapter twenty-four, or twenty-one, starting in verse four. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. 
for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The grass withers, flower fades, but the word of God will endure forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Amen. You may be seated. So... A couple times a year, you'll hear me quote C.S. Lewis or St. Augustine, and I can't help it. I love those guys. So here you go. Augustine, in his uh, famous book, Confessions, we'll get a title for a book, uh, he says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And here's the idea. Our souls were designed to be located and hidden in the divine life of God. We were designed by God to find our full flourishing significance, security, and identity exclusively in him. That's how our souls work. Like a fish is designed for water, your soul was designed for God. And so when we connect our soul to other things... A certain restlessness, uneasiness, a discontentment begins to hemorrhage. When my youngest, Ruthie, uh, was two years old, we were at the mall, and she threw a huge fit, not unlike other two-year-olds, but I was trying to ignore her, kind of ride out the storm, right? Uh, So I'm holding her hand as we walk, and she just protests, and she drops to the floor in a fit, Well, I'm holding her hand, and I don't let go. And at that moment, it dislocates her elbow. Yeah, I'm like that dad, right? It's called nursemaid elbow. I did that. Uh, So her arm is still there. The the tendons and the ligaments are still attached, but the bone is dislocated, and all kinds of pain starts. Now, right away, I could tell that her temper tantrum turned into something else, right? Uh, The doctor was able to pop it back in. But I learned a lot about my soul that day. When our souls are not anchored to God, when our soul is dislocated, it will hemorrhage with discontent. There's this unquenchable thirst for something that will never satisfy. It's like a raging fever that is unaffected by medicine. Nothing is ever good enough. Your spouse is never good enough. Uh, Your body is never good enough. You You want a fitter body. You never have enough money in the bank. Nothing is ever good enough. And we're bored with everything, and it makes us really self destructive. This chronic discontentment makes it hard to see straight. It's like living with that feeling that you get right after you have an Instagram binge or a Facebook binge, right? It's that gross uh, soul sadness that we can't quite describe. You know what I'm talking about. And so our souls hemorrhage with complaining about everything. We become suspicious of everyone. We're not grateful for anything because we're bored and we're angry. That is precisely what we see with Israel in verse 5. Look there in verse 5. It says, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? 
For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now listen, what they're saying to Moses and against God is not true. It's not accurate. God gave them as much water as they needed, and even miraculously through rocks. I mean, just the chapter before, you see Moses kind of filled with resentment. He starts like beating on a rock. You know, he's resentment God in them, and he's beating on this rock. And even still, God was merciful, giving them fresh water. And each morning they'd wake up, there would be this infinite supply of manna, which was literally bread from heaven, you guys. I mean, Israel is not seeing straight. They started to believe that living in Egypt was better. In Egypt, where they were slaves and harshly treated by Pharaoh. What they are saying is that they would rather be harshly treated by Pharaoh uh, as slaves, subject to an evil king, right, than free sons and daughters of a good king. These, peop- these are the people who walked through the Red Sea and that, uh, when they saw it dry up. These are the ones who saw God manifested in this column of fire, leading them to safety through the dark night. These are people who have food without hunting or farming. Now, can you understand like, how offensive their discontentment is, it's ingratitude of the highest, but I mean the highest order. Now, how did, they, how did they get to this point, right? I mean, how did we get here? Discontentment. It's the gateway drug. Nothing is good enough for us. We're living with this kind of low-grade fever, a fever of discontentment and boredom. So you're invited to examine yourself. Where do you... Or do you struggle to be content? Your discontentment has nothing to do with your circumstances. God has given you and I enough to be perfectly satisfied, but we aren't. How come? It's because our souls are dislocated. Our souls are not attached to the divine life. And we're spiritually hemorrhaging with discontentment. And it will eventually kill us if something doesn't change. That's step one. There's a second step, and that's trouble. One of the unique features of Christianity is that God gives us a set of glasses, right? Lenses to see the world. And those glasses allow us to see what others don't see. So Christianity gives us the right, even the responsibility, to reinterpret our troubles. So for Christians, troubles are the chief instrument that God uses to get our attention. In fact, most people will never give Jesus a second thought until they encounter crisis. Sometimes it's financial crisis, vocational, maybe family. Maybe it's your health failing you. But something's got to get your attention. Otherwise, you think you are God and you will live as if Christ didn't exist. Listen, you will never wake up from the delusion, from your delusion until something bad happens. Your doctor will not get your attention until you start dying. Until that fever we're talking about starts burning in your soul, nothing will wake you up. It's trouble. And that trouble might kill you, but it is the only thing that will get your attention. Israel turned their backs on God, but God loved them. He loved, he's crazy about that. He couldn't stop loving them, but he had to wake them up. And so he sent trouble. He sent fiery snakes, is what he sent. Look there in verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, 
And they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Now, some of your translations might say venomous snakes, but the commentaries will tell you a more literal translation is fiery snakes. Now, why did Moses call them fiery snakes? It's because when these snakes bite a person, it feels like fire is coursing through their veins. The fever is so high, and it makes a person experience this unquenchable thirst until they finally die. But here's the thing. Listen, Israel was already dying with a fever that plagued their soul, with this unquenchable rebellion towards God that would kill them, and they didn't even know it. The snakes induced physically what was already happening spiritually. But now, but now they know they're dying, you see. Now they know. The trouble is, the trouble is the only thing that can alert them to a deeper problem that they have. How about you? I'm gonna keep doing this. How about you, right? Are you listening to the pain in your life? Are you paying attention to the trouble? God is alerting you to some some deeper sickness. When God inflicts pain in your life, he does not do so like a murderer, right, with with a butcher knife. He comes to you like a surgeon, right, who will inflict pain in order to restore you. It hurts. It's not without pain, but it's absolutely necessary. Trouble is the warning light on the dashboard. Where do you need to check under the hood, right? Y'all follow that logic? Now step two. Now step three in the cycle for Israel is repentance. You might have heard me uh, share this story before, but as many of you know, I, um, I was raised in the United States to Mexican parents. Uh, if you haven't met my mother before, uh, she might become your favorite person. Uh, she is absolutely crazy. And just like she's awesome, but she's crazy. A lot of fun. And my mom is really, uh, she's really prissy. Um, she likes fine things. She likes air conditioning. She likes good food. She does not like to sweat in fact, I can't remember a single occasion in my childhood seeing my mom sweat, right? She didn't exercise often. It was a few years ago now, I left on an emergency trip to Houston because my mother was dying of a heart attack. The doctors, uh, they needed to do open heart surgery immediately. So my dad was in Iraq at the time, so I was the only one that could get to her that fast. So I got on the first flight out of San Juan, headed straight to Houston. I got there just in time. Right before the doctors took her away, my mother looks me in the eyes and asks, son, am I going to die? And I love my mother very much. So I told her, I don't know, mom, you might. Are you ready to die? Are you ready? I prayed over her and the doctors took her away. My mother survived, but this event got her attention. And guess what? My mom sweats a lot now. She repented of her sedentary lifestyle. Now that sweet old woman walks three to four miles every single day. This got her attention. Well, God got the attention of the Israelites through the serpents, and just like my mom, they repented too. Look there, verse 7. First part, it says, And the people then came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We've sinned. For it's spoken against the Lord and against you. 
Now, the beauty of this confession is that they, they took full responsibility for their sin. They didn't minimize it. They didn't rationalize it. They didn't try to shift blame on someone else in order to justify their actions. They recognized their actions for, for what they were. They were deplorable, and they were an offense against God himself. This was not just saying, I'm sorry, in order to manipulate an outcome. They recognized that if they were to die in that moment, by the venom of snakes, that that would be a just punishment. Now, here's the point. What is true for Israel is true for us. That is, if you want to get right with God and relocate your soul, right? Like, like popping a dislocated shoulder back into its socket, you will have to recognize the, the darkness of your rebellion, Right? Don't, it'll hurt, but don't rationalize it. Don't, don't try to make it appear like it's not that bad. Don't shift blame. Just declare to God in full humility, God, I've sinned against you. My actions are a revolt against your authority. This is unacceptable. I deserve to be eaten by a snake, Lord. Have mercy on me, a rebel, a sinner. And guess what? God has mercy. How so? Step four, a mediator. Let me explain how this works a little bit. If God exists, and he does, then he is perfect. He's perfect in every way. There's no contamination in his character, right? He is holy, and he is just, and this is great, because who wants a God who is unholy and unjust? We want him to be this way. We're thankful that he's holy and just, and yet we still find ourselves painfully estranged from God. How come? Because we are unholy and unjust, and we can't be in God's presence because we are the contaminated ones, and his, his holy justice would, would violently purify us with a heat so hot that it would incinerate us, right? That's what we learned in the book of Leviticus, right? And so we need a representative. And this concept of a representative, um, it's a little bit confusing for us. Uh, let me just illustrate this real quick. Um, it's just like in the World Cup. I know y'all are watching this, right? So uh, we need someone from our country to go to the World Cup to represent us. So when the U.S. women's national team wins, we win, right? I mean, I didn't kick one single soccer ball, but if they win, I win, right? Y'all see how that works. That's why it's so exciting. But who could represent us before God Without being destroyed, right? This representative has to be a man who is fully human, who's, who's from our country, one of us. But he must also be fully divine so that he doesn't get violently purified and die in God's holiness. People have always had a sense that we, humanity, need someone to represent us before God. See, we're not adequate to do that ourselves and this is true for Israel. And for this reason, the people repented, and they immediately recruited a mediator to represent them. Look at the second part of verse 7. So after uh, the people said to Moses, we've sinned, we've spoken against you, the Lord and you, he says, they ask, pray to the Lord, asking Moses, that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now, Mo- notice that they asked Moses to represent them, and so he did. And this intuition is correct. It's, a, it's the right intuition. They were correct to look for someone who would represent them because they dare not represent themselves before God. 
And this is a really important part of the cycle that, that, we, that we see in Israel that we've got to understand for ourselves how they did this. Listen, Israel did not look at their sin and then look to themselves for the resources necessary to make God happy, right? They didn't look inside of themselves. They didn't simply try harder by their own strength. They didn't try to clean themselves up. Rather, they looked outside of themselves for someone who could represent them to God. Because no matter how disciplined or how many good works they did, they knew, even then, they needed someone else. And this is still true today. If you want to get right with God, you can't do it just by trying harder. This is the problem with evangelicalism, or what I call churchianity. We have made the Christian life about the Christian life. It's not, y'all. The Christian life is about Christ. We don't need to try harder. We need Jesus. We need a mediator. We need a mediator not simply to become Christian. We need a mediator for every part of our life. And we don't just do this one time and move on, you see. Listen, Tim Keller, he says it like this. He says, if a person is dying of thirst, you give them water. But if that is the last glass of water that that person drinks, he will even still die of thirst. we got to keep going back to the fount. We need a mediator, not simply for forgiveness, but also for freedom, for growth, for life. Christianity, listen closely, is not just about cleaning yourself up. It's about running to a mediator every day. It's about holding tight to Jesus. This is why here at Trinity, we're so nuts about Jesus. We talk about him all the time. We keep running to him for everything. Of course we look to him for salvation, but we look to him for everything, you see. The society believes that all of our problems in society is out there and that the solution to our problems is somewhere in our hearts. Christians disagree. Christians believe that the problems are inside our wicked hearts. So we're the problem and that the solution comes from out there. Our solution is the mediator. We do not have the resources to make God happy. But Jesus does. And so we look to him and we worship him. So let's move to our very final step in this cycle. So in our text, we find that Moses, is, he's, a, he's an inadequate mediator. Let's be honest. That's not a problem because God provides a mediator of his own. And more specifically, he points us to a snake mounted on a stick. Now, this is actually a very famous symbol. This has become a universal symbol for medicine and healing. This symbol is actually painted on ambulances and hospital doors. Isn't that like an interesting thing? Um... Many people trace the symbol to uh, Greek mythology, but where did those stories find their inspiration? I suspect they find it from Numbers 21. Why? Because it's so stinking counterintuitive. Let me explain. At this point in the narrative, many people have been bitten by snakes. It must have felt like fire was running through their veins. Fever, thirst, death is coming soon. And so they ask Moses to be their mediator, but God offers his own option. Look, look back at the text. We're now we're in verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. 
Verse 9. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Isn't that peculiar? Isn't that interesting? The very thing that inflicted this pain is what God wants them to fix their eyes on. I mean, how, like, how come? It doesn't make any sense. One pastor likens this to like a dog biting you and then you getting healed by staring at his teeth, right? You know, like that just would not be that comforting. So additionally, additionally, in the original Jewish context, snakes are like ceremonially unclean animals. Israel has already been taught to stay away from them. They're ceremonially unclean and more they represent the sinful instrument of Satan, right? To, to fool Adam and Eve but to, into eating the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden? I mean, what's the point? The depth of symbolism can only become clear with Jesus. Do you remember? Well, this was our New Testament reading today. The night that Jesus was having a conversation with Nicodemus. Jesus had been explaining who he is, revealing his identity, And he explains that each person must believe and be born again. And so what did Jesus say? In John 3, verse 14, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, quoting Numbers 21, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying, I'm that snake, right? He says, if you fix your eyes on me, like Israel fixed their eyes on that snake, you live. But why a snake? I mean, why did Jesus choose to identify with something that represents rebellion? Now, I've read a lot of commentaries on this, and I have only found Keller's response to be convincing. The only way to make sense of this is through 2 Corinthians 5.21. And it, this is what it says. This is what Paul says. He says, for our sake... He, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So on the cross, Jesus was raised up on a wooden pole, and he became sin. He didn't become sinful, he became sin. Sin was put on him, and there on the cross, as Jesus was hanging there, It was like fire was running through his veins. He experienced a spiritual fever unlike anything else. An unquenchable thirst coursed in his soul. He even cried out, I thirst. What Israel learned that day is what we have got to learn as well. The only way for you and I to survive this fiery, venomous sin that has dislocated our souls is to fix our eyes with faith on the snake or what's behind that snake is Christ. If you look upon him and you behold him with faith, you'll live. Listen, Trinity, there is no other cure. The story shows us Israel's cycle. Discontentment, trouble, repentance, mediator, and then redemption. The story describes the cycle of modern people, too. We're no different. Our souls are dislocated and hemorrhaging sadness and self-destruction. Just look around your neighborhoods, y'all. 
I'm not, I'm not making this up. Everyone is looking for salvation somewhere. The fever is like a sadness in our souls. But we're not without hope. We're not without hope. May this ancient, ancient story, it's a true story, an ancient story, awaken your affections for Jesus, our healer. Run back to the cross, all ye who are sick with guilt, discontent, and sadness. You'll find healing there. Amen. Amen.